Cade Mila Falta. Welcome to the Letter from Ireland show, where we travel in the footsteps of your Irish ancestors, visiting their homelands and telling their stories as they put down roots in so many places around the world. Hello everybody and you're very welcome to the Letter from Ireland show, series 3, episode 3. In today's show, we are having a hoolie. What's a hoolie, I hear you say? Well, let me explain. Mike and I like to have a gathering and meet face to face with our members of the green room. So we all gather in a wonderful scenic part of Ireland. And there for a few days, we have fun visiting places of wild beauty, meeting colourful characters with a story to tell along the way and generally enjoying the crack, as we say in Ireland. And often as not, we finish the day with a pint of Guinness while enjoying the music, poetry and song in a local bar. So this, listeners, is what the hoolie is all about, where we like to walk in the footsteps of our ancestors and through these experiences, bring their stories to life. Our last hoolie, our gathering of green room members, was held in the bustling market town of Skibbereen in West Cork. This is an area of beauty steeped in history. But we're off to Bantry in West Cork for the next hoolie. And before I tell you about that event, would you like to hear a flavour of what went on when our group gathered at the local corner bar with our Bard of the Hoolie last time in our meetup in Skibbereen? Now, a bard of old is someone who, through poetry, tells the story of people and happenings in the locality and sometimes gets to poke a bit of fun at us too. So Mike and I invited our modern-day bard, Cormac Lally, to join us at our gathering, or Hooli, and we commissioned him to write a poem about our members. And not only that, he recited it too as we all gathered round him in a small corner bar in Skibbereen. Now, you may have heard me talk about Cormac before. He's been with us and you can check out any resources or references we mention in the episode in the show notes at a letterfromireland.com forward slash 303. So Cormac has been on the Letter from Ireland show before and he's a firm favourite. So here he is now for your pleasure in full flow, poking fun at us all as only a bard is entitled to do. Picture the atmosphere in a crowded bar and Cormac stands up to deliver his poem to our group who have travelled from all over England, America, Australia and further afield to connect with their Irish roots. Cormac called his poem a moving story as that is what Mike and I pictured for our green room members as we travelled around a few days together experiencing Ireland. Oh, listen out too for the surnames that Cormac mentions in his poem. You never know, you might hear your own surname mentioned. A moving story. This is a moving story, in many ways and none. We started in Drumbeg, where they worshipped once the sun. And David's blessing of the circle was a blessing on you all, for those who heard their inner paddy and answered Ireland's call. Now, Ireland as a nation is known far and wide, as a place of ancient history where leprechauns reside. But the truth may appear stranger than legends of Hibernier, when Cucullin and the Fianna were the warriors of the day. There's no smoke without fire, and these legends persist, which proves to be maybe there's more to the myths. So sometimes I see tourists, and often I groan, tweed caps on their heads, 
Ah, it's good to be home. But it always has captured my thoughts and reflections as just how powerful is the old Irish connection. And as a boy in Lehinch, I would listen, enraptured, tales of emigration and how they adapted. And these men and these women had tears in their eyes, remembering their families and final goodbyes. And destined for Liverpool, Melbourne, New York, where there's gold in the streets, boys, and plenty of work. Or transport as convicts to work down in Oz, or signed up as soldiers for Mexico's cause. But the heart of them always resided right here, no matter how native they went, or how cavalier, there in the eyes of each soul who departed, to return once again, was their longing wholehearted. And so cade me la falcha, to all you here stood, there's something inside you connected by blood, something so special, so proud to behold, that it cannot be bought or traded for gold. It's in you, it's in me, and these few days will show just exactly how far back our people do go. Eighty million claim us, a fact that I've plucked. If they all move back home, we'd be royally f- in serious trouble. And being proud to be Irish, just what does that mean? Or how Irish is Ireland? Is she she or she been? Ireland broke off the UK after billions of years, floated off and just settled down west of Yorkshire. The ice that then melted and life took a hold. The bears, deers and wolves came in from the cold. Now there's myths and there's legends, there's legends and myths of warriors, kings, bards and goldsmiths. Fomorians, Galicians and two-headed Danon, Vikings sailed inland via the Shannon. They plundered and looted, then married and settled. They traded our cattle, imported their metal. And blending in nicely, their culture was mingled, spreading to Waterford, Cork and to Dingle. Hanlon, Mulvaney, O'Connor, Deneen, Kennedy, Collins, Kelly, Cronin, Kelleher, Foley, Tierney and Ryans, not forgetting, of course, the mighty O'Briens. McCarthy's, O'Driscoll's, O'Sullivan's, Breen's, Burns Dooley's, O'Donnell's, Maher, O'Neill's, each of them chieftains recorded in lore. They defended this island, but failed Baltimore. And slavery, sadly, a side effect trade, till the Normans they landed and won through the blade. Brought Barry's and Nesbitt's, Fleming's and Burke's, Martin's and Keating's, famed for stonework, Fitzgerald and Stacks, Tafe and Cantwell's, Tynan and Walsh's, Hunt's and Purcell's. And onward their conquest was marriage and peace, with as much as could be had with us rowdy Irish. Then Plantation brought Best's, Oars and Macmillan's, Leslie's and Hepburn's, then Cromwell the villain, Turnbull, McClement, Reed's and the Hamilton's, Coots and the Mills, not forgetting the Wilkinson's. No interest in politics, genocide only, to hell or to Connacht, where living was lonely. Time it then passed, and the peace is restored, Ireland of the big house, the blow-in landlords. But their Protestant roots they took to our earth, Wolf Tone, for example, Irish by birth. And slowly but surely, the peace took a hold, commerce and trade, work ethic extolled, even Paisley himself coming round in the end, sworn enemies now became giddy best friends. Some argued his U-turn, a result of a stroke, but deep down he's accepted, he's an Irish bloke. And the bloodshed and violence could have all been avoided, minus state propaganda and unequal employment. So I guess it's quite funny to look back at our roots, not all black and white with uncomfortable truths, 
and were all bits of batter that went in the pot till famine and pestilence ended a lot. And Cove saw two million depart from her port, your ancestors leaving in final resort. The tired huddled masses could finally breathe free, or at least to die trying when crossing the sea. Now back to the present, I hope you're not bored, and so far I haven't heard her a snore. So Cade Meal of Falcha, you're all welcome within. Here's to Ireland, her people. Let the crack now begin. And let me tell you, the crack did continue till the early hours that night. But didn't Cormac Lally, our bard of the Hooli, sum up well what we were all experiencing when he said that we have a special Irish connection that cannot be bought or sold or traded for gold? I think I'd have remembered my Irish history much better if it had been told to me in a story or poem like Cormac has just given us. Thanks very much, Cormac. But moving along to our next Thule, which sees us heading out the road from Skibbereen and over the hill and down to Bantry. Bantry in West Cork is situated on the shores of Bantry Bay and faces out towards the Atlantic while surrounded by the majestic Sheehy Mountains. A friend of mine once told me that they thought the approach to Brantry Town was the most beautiful in all of Ireland. And, you know, I think he could be right on that. You'll have to come and judge for yourself. Looking up the hill is the amazing Bantry House with views over the bay. But I'll tell you about that later on. First, would you like to get to know some of the places and people in Bantry? And to get to know a little about this fascinating place and its history... For today's podcast, I found three stories in Mike's Letter from Ireland, and I'd like to start with one about a famous son of Bantry. He, from a very young age, was enthralled by the power of music, and today he has a festival in Bantry named in his honour and celebrating his contribution to Irish music. He's called Chief O'Neill. So here is Mike's letter from Ireland on the Bantry boy who moved from Trailbawn just outside Bantry to Chicago. Here goes. An Irish warrior name. Do you have an O'Neill surname in your family tree? Or maybe it's a variant such as O'Neill, N-E-A-L, or MacNeil, or Neil, or Nielsen. The ancient Irish given name Niall sometimes pronounced Neil, comes from the Irish for warrior. And you, as you might imagine, now that was a very desirable first name back in the day for a boy. So as a result, many families across Ireland had a Nile or a warrior in their midst by the 400s. When surnames came to prominence in Ireland, and this is about the 900s, we followed a system where a surname derived from an illustrious ancestor by calling the descendants in a family O, or descendants of, or Mac, son of. As you might imagine, this resulted in a number of distinct O'Neills and MacNeils, families springing up in separate parts of Ireland. So we have the famous O'Neill clan of Ulster, but there are also unrelated O'Neill families in counties Clare, Waterford, Carlow, Cork and Kerry, to name just a few. How about you? Maybe you have an O'Neill or a MacNeill, and I wonder which county they came from. But back to our story. From Trailbawn to the city of Chicago. 
Daniel Francis Frank O'Neill, N-E-I-L-L, was born in 1848 in the townland of Trailbone, near enough to Bantry Town in County Cork. He had the good luck to be born into a musical family. His parents were accomplished musicians and they often hosted fellow musicians and sessions in their house. From a young age, Frank was exposed to music through the partition in his bedroom as he drifted off to sleep. That memory stayed with him right into his older age. As he grew, it seemed natural that he'd develop a skill at both the flute and pipes himself. And like many musicians at the time, he had to rely on his ear to learn a tune because he never developed an ability to read and notate music himself. By the age of 16, he was off on his adventures, off to Cork City, where he joined an English merchant ship as a cabin boy. Eventually, he arrived in the city of Chicago and he married a lady by the name of Anna Rogers. Now, they settled down and he eventually became a police officer at the age of 25. One of the attractions in Chicago for Frank was the high number of musicians arriving from Ireland and Scotland every month to that city. He played with them, they exchanged tunes and they brought together music from the four corners of Ireland into that one great city. Frank O'Neill quickly moved up the ranks in the Chicago police force and he eventually topped out as chief of police in 1901, a position which he held until his retirement four years later in 1905. But by that time, he had set about publishing his collection of Irish dance tunes into a set of volumes, starting off with O'Neill's Music of Ireland. And this contained an astonishing 1,800 pieces of music. His biographer, Nicholas Carlin, felt that O'Neill was, and I quote, the greatest individual influence on the evolution of Irish traditional music in the 20th century. Now, that's something. Indeed, it's hard to guess just what a state our Irish music scene would be in today if it were not for the musical and organisational talents of this one individual and the opportunity and resources that the city of Chicago provided to him over the decades. So, thank you, Chicago. Back to Bantry, though. Today, a full-life statue of Chief O'Neill stands beside his own place, with the man himself in full flight on the flute out there in Trailbone. There is now an annual Chief O'Neill Festival held in Bantry Town, and often there are some wonderful musicians who will set up and they'll have some storytelling as well as dancing at the crossroads. Now, Mike's story ends with the invite that maybe we'll see you there one of these days and we'll have a dance or two at the crossroads. What a great story. Thanks, Mike. But that gets me thinking. Perhaps we will look into some dancing at the crossroads in our next Julian Bantry. Who knows? Wouldn't it be a bit of crack, though? Now, there's so much more to discover in this lovely part of the world. So why don't we head out further out of Bantry town and out along the Bear Peninsula all the way to the fishing village of Castletown Bear. Here we follow the remarkable story of an ordinary Irish man, Dr. Aidan McCarthy, who Mike's letter about in his letter from Ireland calls One Story Behind an Irish Bar. 
Now, Mike starts this letter from Ireland by letting one of our readers on the weekly letter, Sandy Laferrier, introduce us to her trip on the Bear Peninsula. By the way, Sandy is now a well-known and much-loved member of our green room, and no doubt she will be with us at the Bantry Hooley. But let's crack on with the story. So over to you, Sandy. Gurian Berth Boher is a lovely old Irish saying. That means two people shorten the road. Gurian Berth Boher. A few years ago, I went to England to spend the week with a friend. Then she and I flew to Dublin and Cork where we rented a car. We went to Kinsale, Skibbereen, Bantry, Kinmare and around the Ring of Kerry. We saw many wonderful little towns along our journey. We finished our journey in Castletown Bear, where we dropped into a pub in the middle of the town called McCarthy's Bar and Grocery. After a while, we got chatting to the proprietor, Adrian McCarthy. Now, there was a book on display in the bar called A Doctor's War, and it turned out that it was written by her father, Aidan McCarthy. However, the real treat was that Adrian asked if I would like to visit her mother, who was now 100 years old and living upstairs over the bar. Well, what an honour and a pleasure it was to meet that lady who had seen so much in her long life. I'll always treasure the book all about the wartime exploits of her husband. So, I have so many wonderful memories of Ireland and I'm now part of this very special Letter from Ireland family and it keeps me connected as I continue on my journey. In this case, many people shorten the road and may I add, lighten the load. Thank you, Mike and Karina, for all you've done for so many. Though we have yet to meet in person, I feel as though we have been friends for years. Sandy Kennedy Laferrier. Well, we actually have met now and we are firm friends. But thank you very much, Sandy, for sharing that story and your memories of that precious meeting. For the remainder of this letter, Mike says, I'd like us all to return to Castletown Bear and tell the remarkable story of the father and husband to the two ladies you met on your travels. So now let us head into the same McCarthy's bar in Castletown Bear right through the front door and out to the back of the bar. And there we find a beautiful Japanese ceremonial sword in a frame on the wall. You see, there is an amazing story behind this sword. It's the story of Dr. Aidan McCarthy of Castletown Bear. From Cork to Dunkirk to Nagasaki. The pub is owned by Adrian McCarthy and her father, Aidan, was born in Castletown Bear in 1913. Aidan studied to become a medical doctor in University College Cork, but he ended up emigrating for work like so many young Irish people. His journey led him to England, where he decided to sign up as a medic in the Royal Air Force at the beginning of the Second World War. He was present at the evacuation of Dunkirk in France in 1940, sheltering from the bombardment for three days before eventually being rescued. The ship on which he returned to England was unfortunately torpedoed, but it did stay afloat and Aidan tended to the wounded and dying on that slow journey back. He proved himself both mentally and physically tough over the coming months, and received the George Cross for bravery. 
but he would need all that toughness for what was to come over the next few years. In late 1941, Aidan McCarthy was sent to help defend Singapore with his squadron of Spitfires and Hurricanes, but the city fell to the Japanese shortly after their arrival. McCarthy, along with thousands of other soldiers, was sent to a prisoner of war camp in nearby Java. While imprisoned there over the next two years, he set up dietary regimes for the inmates to combat the meagre rations and constant disease. Simple survival must have been an achievement among the summary executions, constant beatings, starvation diets and a brutal work regime. In 1944, he was put on board a ship back to Japan with a thousand other prisoners. On the journey, the ship was torpedoed and all but 40 of the prisoners were killed in the attack. A Japanese ship picked up the survivors, but when they discovered they were allied prisoners, they started to beat and kill the survivors and then throw them overboard. Aidan did not wait for his turn and chose to take his chances as he jumped over the side of the boat and into uncertain waters. As luck would have it, he was rescued and brought to Nagasaki in Japan, where he was reinterred as a prisoner. But while there, he assumed his role as a medic, and he himself, however, was the subject of many beatings and that later required surgery to his arms and spine. You can only imagine how far away he must have felt from his friends and family in the quiet West Cork village of Castletown Bear. In August 1945, the city of Nagasaki became the last city in the world to receive a direct nuclear attack. Aidan and his fellow inmates, inmates were inside an air shelter during the bombing. But when they emerged, not only was the entire camp levelled, but the entire city too. This scene must have been beyond words for those few living witnesses. And Aidan quickly went to work tending to the scorched bodies of the survivors as well as he could. However, he and the surviving prisoners were rounded up and sent to yet another labour camp. A few short weeks later, Japan surrendered and Allied troops moved into the area surrounding Aden's camp. Now, it may have been Aden's philosophy and training as a doctor that led him to lock the camp commander into a room for his own safety, but that move saved the commander's life as Allied troops marched into the camp with little appetite for mercy. As a mark of gratitude, the camp commander presented Aidan McCarthy with his ceremonial sword, an incredible mark of respect and gratitude. Aidan returned to England, retired from the RAF and married a girl from Galway. He continued to practice as a doctor in many parts of the world, apparently never losing his Cork accent. He went on to live a long life well into the mid-1990s. And it was only later in his life that he actually shared the stories of the horror of his experience during the Second World War. And that's the story behind the sword that you will find at the back of McCarthy's Bar in a small town of Castletown Bear in West Cork on the Bear Peninsula. Should you stop there for a soup or a drink or a sandwich or even a few groceries, do have a look. We often expect to hear stories when we go into an Irish bar, 
But there we have the story of the bar itself, the sword and the amazing Dr. Aidan McCarthy. How about you? Maybe you have a similar story of survival and bravery in your family history. The story of Aidan, Dr. Aidan McCarthy, has been made into an excellent documentary called A Doctor's Sword. If you'd like to see it, you can easily find it on Google. It's called again, A Doctor's Sword. Now, thank you, Sandy LaFerrier, for reminding us of the most amazing stories that come out of those remote corners of Ireland. Well, thanks both to Mike and Sandy for such an entertaining story. And it's just one of the many in this friendly part of Ireland. It feels like a place apart and a bit off the beaten track out here in West Cork. But that's the beauty of it, as they say. Here, you meet people with time to chat, just as Sandy did when she and her friend popped into McCarthy's Bar and Grocery in Castletown Bear. And you never know what or who you'll meet around the next bend. But for now, it's time for us to return to Bantry Town and for our final story today about this wonderful place. If you do get a chance to visit Bantry, you'll see up on the hill an imposing mansion called Bantry House. And so we can't leave the town without telling you the story about this place. Here's Mike's letter where we find out all about it. The Downton Abbeys of Ireland. Are you a fan of Downton Abbey? As a television series, it seems to divide the room into either diehard fans of costume drama and a lot of others who wonder, what is all this fuss about? Which side of the fence are you on? It often surprises visitors to Ireland just how many of these Downton Abbey-type houses and estates are in Ireland, some standing in their original grandeur and more still lying in ruin around the countryside. The Rise of the Great Houses of Ireland Cromwell took a military stroll, now that's an in inverted commas, around Ireland in the mid-1600s, and he put an end to the benefits of castles and tower houses that dotted the Ireland of Ireland, of Ireland at the time. His cannons easily demolished their walls, and over the following decades, the lands surrounding these buildings were transferred to loyal Protestant soldiers, adventurers and speculators. The early 1700s saw the arrival of a period of relative calm across the island of Ireland, which prompted the wealth of landowners to grow, and this in turn led to the building of many of the great houses of Ireland that we see today. Some of these houses were built to impress, laid out on a similar scale to Downton Abbey, while others were more modest glebe houses attached to church-owned land. It is estimated that over 5,000 of these houses were built in Ireland between 1700 and the late 1800s. Only a fraction, maybe a tenth of these houses are still standing and habitable today. One of these houses is Bantry House in West Cork, sitting on one of the most beautiful locations in the world. Maybe you've visited this wonderful spot already. The view across Bantry Bay. In 1700, the local Hutchinson family laid the foundations for what is now Bantry House, but they were replaced by the White family in 1765. 
The Whites had arrived in the area from Limerick, first to Whiddy Island, and in time they became the largest landowner in that area. So by the late 1700s, the threat of Napoleon's French Navy was keenly felt in this area by the British administration. Indeed, their worries were confirmed when a French fleet anchored in Bantry Bay in 1796, led by one Wolf Tone. Richard White monitored the movements of the French boats through his lookouts across the coast and placed Bantry House at the disposal of the British Army. However, the French invasion turned out to be a massive failure due to local weather conditions at the time. But White was rewarded for his efforts with the first, the title of Lord Bantry, and later he became the first Earl of Bantry. With the arrival of the Great Famine in the 1800s, the southwest of Ireland was one of the hardest hit. Some landlords ignore the problem of their tenants, while others took advantage of the situation to clear the land for development. However, the White family set up a number of relief schemes across the Bantry estate, doing what they could during such a terrible circumstances. The late 19th century in Ireland welcomed in a period of land reform, but now the income required to support the upkeep of these great houses and estates diminished with each passing year. So the era of the great houses in Ireland was beginning to come to an end. Today, as you drive around the Irish countryside, it's noticeable just how many of these great houses were burnt out at one time and now lie in ruins. The Irish War of Independence took place between 1919 and 1921, and many of these houses were destroyed to stop them from being used as barracks by soldiers and militia. Many more houses were destroyed or left standing as locals recalled how the occupants conducted themselves at the time of the Great Famine. Bantry House stayed standing through this turbulence, but the real challenges lay ahead. High inheritance taxes, diminished incomes and costly upkeep led many of the remaining houses to be abandoned or some converted to hotels or convents down through the years. Much of the treasure held inside their walls was sold to the highest bidder and lost to the four corners of the world. Given this context and history, Bantry House is quite remarkable. While it opened to the public in 1946, it remains still in the private ownership of the extended White family, who still live in a portion of the house today and welcome visitors, music festivals and garden lovers to their home each year. How about you? Did any of your ancestors come from one of these big houses of Ireland. Maybe they worked on the estate grounds. Do let us know. I must say I felt like a princess myself the last time I visited Bantry House. I was there with a friend for the classical music festival and oh, to listen to the music as it drifted out over the garden on that summer's evening. It was just magical. We had tea in the conservatory and walked up the back of the house where there's something like a hundred steps right up the top. And from this viewpoint, we looked down on the house and the gardens. Oh, it was wonderful appreciating its commanding position with magnificent views out over the bay. Truly a magical place. 
There's so much to explore in Bantry that I could go on and on. We've just given you a glimpse of the area here. I hope you enjoyed our trip around Bantry, though, and got a peek at what's in store for Green Room members at our next gathering or hoolie here in West Cork. Sad to say, that's it for today's Letter from Ireland show. And I'll let you with the words of our bard from Cormac Lally when he described us Irish in his moving story poem at the top of the show. These words stuck with me anyway when he said, we are all bits of batter that went into the pot. Now, how's that for a description of us Irish down through the ages? What do you think of that, listeners? As always, do feel free, you know, to share your own questions or stories. And remember, we'd love to hear from you. And you can let your comments and check out more on this podcast at a letterfromireland.com forward slash 303. Just before we go, thanks again for listening. And if you have enjoyed today's Letter from Ireland show, we invite you to check out our special membership area called the Green Room. You can find full details of the Green Room at a letterfromireland.com forward slash green room. And remember there, green room is all one word. The Green Room is the essential resource for anyone at any stage in researching their Irish heritage. It's where we delve into all the good stuff to help you break down those brick walls and connect the pieces in your Irish ancestry puzzle. You get access to online genealogists, extensive research tools, quick win training, as well as member-only access to johngrenham.com and a supportive, active community to help you along the way with feedback and advice. The Green Room is the perfect place to be for anyone starting or continuing their Irish ancestry search. So do come and join us at aletterfromireland.com forward slash green room. Well, that's it for me. And I'll be back next week with another installment of The Letter from Ireland Show. Look forward to chatting with you then. Sláin Karina.